I don't know if you would say this. I would say that the lifestyle and the the grind, the hustle culture, the like put in, you know, hundreds of raw hours every month. I believe that inversely and counterintuitively worked against the success of the business. I think that it made us tired. I think it made us burnt out. I think it made us make poor decisions. And what the hell is the goal of an entrepreneur? What's what's your job or my job? It's to make the best decisions we possibly can, which I don't think you do if you're working 60 or 70 or 80 hour weeks. Hey, everybody. What's up? It's Chase. Welcome to another episode of the show. The Chase Jarvis Live Show here in your ears, in your face, if you're watching, listening. The show is built for you. I sit down with the world's top creators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders, and I do what I can to unpack their brains and help you live your dreams and career, hobby, and life. And today's show is with Rand Fishkin. Now, Rand is a second time, I think, second time guest in the show. Really interesting entrepreneur, and I know you're going to love his story. He dropped out of University of Washington a long time ago to go to work at his mom's small business an incredible story of how that small business transformed his life and led him to creating, among other things, his first company called Moz, SEO Moz. If you are at all in corporate marketing, you're probably aware that the role that SEO plays. Well, SEO Moz was the company that helped other companies figure this stuff out. He went on to, on this previous show that he's been on for, for us, talk about the twisting, turning road that was his journey in Moz. And he talks today about how he was pushed out of that company, went back to try and fix it. Later, how that company was acquired and all of the lessons therein. It is a fascinating episode uh, that reveals a little bit about, you know, the relationship that that uh, entrepreneurs have with their companies and with investors. When to think about bootstrapping. You know, if you are in the process and you want to grow your business, should you raise money or not? Why? How? It's a fascinating episode that covers Rand's entrepreneurial journey. Among other things, this guy is an absolutely lovely human. Been friends for a long time. I've got a lot of respect and appreciation for him, and I know you're going to get a lot of value and love today's show. If you are interested in starting a company, he also has a lot of open source docs that could be helpful in helping you get off the ground. So much value in this episode. I'm going to get out of the way. Yours truly and Rand Fishkin. Rand, you're back on the show. Welcome back, my friend. <laughs> Good to be here, Chase. Thanks for having me. I love it. Let's consider this like we're we're looping back on previous conversations. Uh, everyone who's listening and watching knows from the intro that um, I just shared with them prior to hitting you and I hit and record that that uh, you're an awesome entrepreneur, a dear friend, uh, a collaborator, a co-conspirator for the creative universe. Um, Northwest base, Pacific Northwest. So yeah. we, we are of a, of a similar spirit. Um, and there are a handful of things that I wanted to cover in today's show. Uh, three in particular. One, um, I have enjoyed following you on the social universe where you and your wife are traveling the world doing really fun things. Two, you've been on the show before and talked specifically uh, a, a, a book launch not too long ago yeah. where you talked about uh, starting growing Moz, leaving Moz. And I was, my interest was piqued because you recently wrote, uh, another piece on your blog, sort of outlining, uh, 
a last chapter, if you will, or another, yeah. a final chapter, maybe that could have been attached to that book, but it wasn't. And this is about the entrepreneur's journey. So I wanted to speak uh, in particular about that. And then you're doing all kinds of cool stuff. You gave me a chance to invest in a company that I, I missed the round. <laughs> and um, so that tells me you're, you're, um, what I like to call tinkering with yeah, a bunch yeah. of a, a bunch of really new cool stuff. So there's plenty for us to talk about. Uh, let's again start off by welcoming you back to the show. Tell me what's been going on. Start on any one of those sure. things, or or just uh, you know give us the overall. Well, maybe a little backstory. Yeah. How do you? Yeah, you how do you know? How do you? How do you? Yeah, yeah. Um, Especially for folks who might not have caught for right. Sure. Like if you didn't catch the previous episode and you're like, who is right. this guy? So, right. um, me, t- orient us in time and space into sure. Rand's universe. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sort of, uh, old school, at least in, in digital marketing universe, right. I started doing web design and web marketing back in the mid to late nineties, um, in high school and college, and then got into SEO search engine optimization, uh, just as like Google was kind of getting popular in 2001. Legendary in that yeah. space. Legend. Yeah, right. Yeah. You're a legend. <laughs> I did, I did plenty of sketchy things in the early 2000s trying to figure out you know, like how, how to make Google work, but then um, started this blog in 2003 called SEO Moz that turned into an SEO consulting business that turned into an SEO software business and became, for a while, you know, was kind of like the, the world's leading SEO software, raised lots and lots of venture capital, I think $30 million or something. Um, and you know, had whatever, tens of thousands of customers and uh, $50 million in revenue. And then, you know, things kind of plateaued slash went sideways. I um, had a an episode of deep depression and I stepped down from the CEO role, promoted my chief operating officer to uh, CEO. And over the next few years, we sort of disagreed and the business went a little more sideways. And um I left the company in 2018. So uh, since then was involved a little bit. You know, I was still on the board of directors, still contributing here and there, but mostly like threw in the towel, right? Thought this is never going to be worth anything. You know, I have a lot of regrets, but at least I learned a lot and I built a network and I have people who, who know and love and support me. And that's, that's wonderful. Right. So I, Started a new company called SparkToro, which I think uh, you and I chatted a little bit about last episode yeah. mm-hmm. that we were on together. I think that that company did not have a product when we chatted, but now it does. It's been uh, live for three years, doing quite nicely. It's profitable. It is um, like everybody, the businesses that everybody wants these days. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's very, <laughs> here's one of the weirdest things I think. I suspect this will appeal to a lot of people who listen to this show. It's a very chill business. So we aim to have French working hours or less, right? Which is like 32 hours a week. Um, and we're very focused on making sure that there is ton of redundancy and not a lot of um, temporal demand that would force, you know, Casey, right. my co-founder, who's, who's sort of our, uh, runs the technical side of things to be on call or on demand. He, he went to Mexico for 18 days or something with his family. We had virtually no support emails, right? He was like, I, I had to do like 15 minutes of work a day or less just checking in. And that, that's a really and, beautiful thing. And say what the business does too. Yeah. Yeah. So Spark Toro uh, is audience research. So essentially yeah. let's say you 
uh, wanted to reach interior designers in Los Angeles. And you wanted to know, well, what podcasts do interior designers in LA listen to? And uh, what websites are popular that they visit? And tell me more about their demographics. Like what's the gender breakdown? I want to know education and background. I want to know degrees that they got. I want to know schools they went to. I want to know job titles that they describe themselves with, all that kind of stuff. And SparkToro can tell you those things yes. um, along with a bunch of other details. And we, and we do that through crawling and aggregating a bunch of social data, clickstream data, search data, et cetera. I, I won't get into the details. because No, it's, it's a very smart and incredibly valuable product. Yeah, especially it's fun, if you're, it's if fun you to see, market, right? Like sometimes yeah. <laughs> folks like yourself, right? It'll be like, oh, I really need to target this new group of people. What's my sort of marketing plan? What should that be? Oh, look, I can see that they use LinkedIn much more than, than average, or they use Reddit a lot less than average, or those kinds of things. So lots of lots of cool details in there. So, so that business so is going nicely. And then Chase, as you mentioned or alluded to, I started another company. <laughs> um, so this one is a video game studio, uh, indie video game studio with um, a very, very experienced and, and sort of famous game designer, a uh, French guy named Nicolas Kraj, who's um, now based in Romania. Uh, and he, he and I became friends sort of over the pandemic and decided, hey, we, we got to pursue this game. So we're making a game about uh, foraging and cooking in a magical version of 1960s Italy. Um, and that, uh, that video game has been fascinating. I've been interviewing, uh, artists for the lead artist position the last couple of weeks, which has been a Ooh, cool. yeah, really interesting, uh, journey. I have a, have a few candidates that look really exciting. So, uh, great to see. We've got a lead developer who's in the Canary Islands and, uh, Geraldine's our lead writer. So yeah, building a great team around that. Sweet. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> That I would put that in bucket three of the table that I set. That's new and interesting things that you're going deep on. I want to start, if we can, in the middle. Start in the middle of the sandwich where the meat is, so they say. And part of the, you know, I like to go back and visit with guests who've been on the show before. And the last time we talked, you were managing a tough spot. You were doing the entrepreneurial um mucking of a stall if you're a, if you ride horses you're shoveling the shit yeah. and that the shit that invariably happens when you build anything that has far-reaching impact and revenue numbers like the ones that you mentioned and these are things these are stories that are very rarely told because it's not you know historically it's very interesting from a human perspective but from a business perspective it's almost um it's almost uh I don't know. It just doesn't get the airtime because it's not what people want to hear. People want to hear that being an entrepreneur is easy and being a creator is clean and always fun. And I'm hoping that you can, you know, help us understand that journey. Let's pick up, maybe overlap a little bit with our last conversation and your most recent book sure. and then help people understand the, the full closing of that chapter so that we can learn from your journey. Sure. Yeah. So. Um, you know, I mentioned that, that Moz kind of had these messy years where, where things went sideways after, after lots of years of growth. And I think with the benefit of hindsight, uh, it's really, really clear what happened, right? Crystal clear, which is essentially that we, my, myself included, right? I put myself fully in this bucket, especially early on, 
um, we and our investors on the board came to believe that SEO, which was the focus of the business, was not ever going to be a big enough market to produce a unicorn valuation company, which is what all venture-backed companies are, are trying to achieve, right? They want to get that billion-dollar valuation and, and hopefully a billion-dollar-plus outcome, meaning, meaning an exit, a, an IPO, or a sale. And to do that, right, you really need to be a hundred million plus dollars in revenue growing 20, 25% year over year uh, at a minimum. And Moz, you know, had been growing very, very fast for uh, what its first like seven, eight years, nine years. Um, but then as that growth rate slowed and the dollars sort of plateaued, the, the board came to believe like, oh no, the problem is not us or the company. The problem it's is the, the market. market, the yeah. market, right? So what we should do is expand the market and try to serve all these different other marketing functions. Uh, that journey was as poorly timed as it could, could have possibly been. So we, we probably spent two to three years taking our eye off the SEO ball. And, you know, as, as we discovered with the benefit of hindsight, the, that was the time when the SEO market was growing the most. Right. Like it just it just shot up like a rocket ship and three, four other companies in the SEO software space took advantage of the fact that Moz had pulled, you know, put its foot on the brake, was building no new features for SEOs, wasn't releasing stuff, wasn't keeping up with where Google was going so that it could focus on these other, you know, uh, aspects. And they became market leaders. Right. So SEMrush, which is, is quite well known, um, sort of surpassed Moz in around somewhere between 24. 14 and 16, uh, and Ahrefs, which is a privately held company, didn't go public, but they also significantly passed Moz. A couple of enterprise SEO suites surpassed Moz in terms of revenue and, and market penetration. So just, you know, um, foolishness and uh, I think bad intuition, bad beliefs at the board level not reinforced by data. And then, you know, even as I don't want to paint myself as like some visionary here or something, but th there did come a point probably early in that process where I, you know, was close to the market, had always been in SEO and was like, this is not, this is not right. We're not doing the right thing. Unfortunately, after I stepped down as CEO, I, I think there was kind of a belief that Hey, Rand is broken. He's got depression. He's not someone we can trust and rely on. And so if he says something, we probably yeah. shouldn't believe it. Like we should do the opposite of that. <laughs> and you can imagine, right? That kind of makes you crazy um, to feel like, wait, this is my company. I, I built it from scratch. Like this is. I know. know. Yeah. And, you know, I'm the person who is associated with this business and, you know, whatever. 100,000 people around the world think that Moz and Rand are kind of the same thing. So my personal identity and my, my you know, existence is so tied to this company. Um, and then I can't, I can't get it to listen to me, right? I'm not, I'm not in charge anymore. I don't have the power to make what are, I think are the right decisions. And so you know, that led to painful years of slow growth and my departure uh, at the start of 2018.
I, I, let me ask some questions in there because I think there's a bunch of lessons in that part that you described where you had a belief that you had to go chase another rainbow that, you know, that diversification was the answer rather than because the goal is to grow, 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 grow. So there's a couple things we've had, I think a, a mutual friend or at least someone who we both know, I know him really well. I think, you know, him. Uh, T.A. McCann. Yep, we've, sure. we've had T.A. on the show and he helped us understand the, the listeners and watchers understand in, in this community when, you know, what, what, why would you go outside and raise money at all? Because there's a lot of creators and entrepreneurs listening who are like, I want to raise money. But why do they want to raise money? They ra want to raise money largely because it's been glorified culturally and they don't actually know if they have a venture scale business. And then if they do, they're like, oh, cool. Someone's going to come along, give me some money. I'm going to get to go do my thing. And they don't understand the strings that that comes with when you have specifically venture, I will say, which you alluded to, and I've been down that journey before. There's a, a lack of understanding that, hey, buckle up, cowboy, because it's billion or bust. They would literally, the, the venture capital industry is built on the fact that we are going to jam every ounce of our energy and capital into making this a billion dollar business. And if it falls short, we would rather shut it down than just have a really nice business that made 50 million a year. And people's, yeah. people's brains explode when I tell them that. <laughs> and uh, they, I'll tell you, I'll tell you another thing that makes their please brains do. explode. So I, you know, I've been pretty transparent about my finances, especially, you know, during my, my years at Moz and, uh, lots of folks who own a consulting agency or who, you know, are independent consultants and creators themselves or, you know, run popular YouTube channels or email newsletters, you know, we'll be ch chatting and they're like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. How much did you make it? Mo I made more than I make more than you as CEO and founder of a $50 million a year company with 85% margins. Why? Why don't you make money from that? And I'm like, well, because the board decides my salary and they reduce your salary based on the amount of equity that you hold. So if you own a lot of your company, you don't make very much in salary, right? Like the yeah. CEO who succeeded me was making two and a half, three times what I made as CEO because she had much less stock. And so the, you know, the board was like, well, this is how we, we do comp. And yeah, people's minds are blown when they're like, wait a minute, I could make more as a level two engineer at Amazon. I'm like, yep, you could mm -hmm. <laughs> for sure. Right. But so this is part of the mission of the show is to help understand these things. And if I pull on these threads a little bit more here and, um, and again, I want to say thanks in advance for being, you know, so vulnerable about this process and writing about it as you have at length. So for people who follow you closely, they know that you've written about this. And for those that are new, like this is part of, to me, this is wisdom. This is entrepreneurial wisdom on display here, your experiences, and we all want to learn from them. So you, what would you have done differently in hindsight? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have, I would not have raised venture if, if I could have avoided it, which I don't, I don't know that I could have. There was not, there's not a lot of opportunities out there to raise money, right? I'm not a, I, I did not grow up wealthy. I didn't have like, I couldn't go to friends and family or, you know, use family money um, to raise that would not have worked. Right. You, you know, the story my mom and I were super deep in debt, like half a million dollars in credit card debt because we couldn't pay our bills and, you know, just all sorts of crappy financial situations. And 
panicking that my dad was going to find out and divorce my mom and kick my grandmother out of her house. We were, yeah, it was just, it was a shit show, man. Um, so <laughs> I don't know that I had the choice, right? Like I, yeah. it wasn't just the cultural pressure or sort of, um, desire to fit into that world. Some of that was there for sure, but also this, like, there's no other money out there. I wish in hindsight, what I would have done is raise the first round from, from ignition, which was very small, right? 1.1 million. And then once we got to profitability, I would have talked to my investors and be like, Hey, I need to buy you out. We're, we're going to run this company as a profitable, long-term focused business. That might not get you your money back. If you want to sell your equity to a private equity firm, to another fund or something like that might be your exit, but this is going to be a long-term thing. Chris uh, and Brendan at Wistia, Wistia's outstanding business, right? Did exactly that. And they have a really similar trajectory to like what Moz was doing, right? In that, you know, high tens of millions of dollar range, um, healthy growth, profitable growth. And they basically told their investors like, we're not doing the venture thing. So you're going to have to find another way to get your exit. And they, they eventually arranged that through, I think, a debt financing situation. Um, so maybe something like that would be what I would have done and concentrated, kept concentrating on the SEO market. I think I also, I should have delegated rather than stepping down entirely. Mm -hmm. Right. So I should have said, hey, I'm in a bad place but I'm going to retain the CEO role and title. I need you executive team and people, you know, who work with me to fill in these gaps while I'm sort of in this painful spot and I'll figure my stuff out and come back stronger. Um, but I shouldn't, I shouldn't have given up that role and title. I think it, you know, Moz was not far enough along to, um, abdicate that role. And, and, and I, and, I feel and guilty. And then there are times where, right, where you have reached the end of your ability to lead effectively. And perhaps let's just say Moz started doing 250 million in revenue and you are going to go public. And I think there are times I do not know. And I am, would never, you know, assume to be able to point to a period where Rand's time at Moz should be done. But the point that I'm trying to make is perhaps in the future, at some point, what got you here is not the thing that's going to get you there. So there is sure, some wisdom yeah. and you know, assigning someone who has taken a company public or whatever. Yeah. Um, and there are examples on both sides of the coin, right? There's Zuckerberg been since day one and retains that, you know, that title. And there are lots of people who the CEO role has handed, you know, been the baton has been passed many times. And then they ultimately have a very successful outcome over the course of, you know, 10 plus years. So yeah. the proof is in the pudding and you never know what you got. And so this hindsight is 2020, but I still find it fascinating that you could say that it was premature to hand it over that you probably wouldn't have taken another round of financing which then signed you up for a bigger exit and more exactly. board seats and all these other sort of sort of dramas and i and yeah. to me what's interesting about the story and why i wanted to make sure that you came back on the show was again so people could hear that a lot of the companies that you know like respect use appreciate value a lot of the entrepreneurs there'd been a lot of mistakes, a lot of missteps along the way. In some cases, those missteps have led to, um, you know, personal growth and some dynamic moves and great outcomes. 
And in a lot of other cases, the reason that the entrepreneur that you love so much is doing the thing that they're doing now is because they fucked up something before. Yeah. 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 So, so I mean, this is, uh, I'll, I'll say two things, right? One is for folks, um, for folks who are like, geez, you know, that, that kind of sucks. Is that the end of the story? No. Right. Like you, you read this recent blog post of mine, um, sort of during the pandemic when, you know, the era of cheap money had not yet ended and, and private equity was going crazy. Someone did buy moths, not, not for what anybody would call a good outcome. I think our venture investors, I don't think they made a two X return, right? And their goal is 10 X plus. I, I doubt they even made 1.5, right? So they, they did not do great. Um, Chase, I'll tell you one of the things that gnaws at me when I talk about like feeling guilty, there were people who, there was a woman who emailed, she'd been at the company for 11 years, right? Like she had really been a huge part of Moz throughout its journey. Um, she worked on the, on the engineering team and, uh, you know, terrific, terrific player, just all around good human being. And her, you know, her bonus, her, her sort of compensation from all the stock options that she had owned and held for a long time and paid taxes to execute, right? Because you have to, you have to execute your stock options um, after a, a certain number of years. I think was going to be twenty thousand dollars, <laughs> which yeah. you know over eleven years. That's like what? What are you talking about? That's my. That's why I took a lower salary to join this startup instead of going to a big company, and that's why I sacrificed and, and grinded so hard for so many years. And it just you know it made me feel like crap. Um, so when 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 the company sold, um. I don't, this is a super emotional story. I don't, all right. So I, I had a really good friend, like really, really good friend at, at, um, Moz. Many people are familiar. I think you're probably familiar with domain authority, right? Like the metric that Moz created that, yes. you know, a lot of people in the SEO and marketing world used as the uh, number that they yeah. rate websites. Right. So it's like this, has this domain has a 98 domain authority. It's really, really important on the web content on it will rank very well in Google. This, domain is brand new. It'll have like a one domain authority, you know, that kind of score. And the guy who maintained that and worked incredibly hard on it was Russ Jones, who was a genius and one of the funniest guys you ever talked to. And during the pandemic, um, he started having some like physical ailments issues, but he was like, well, I'll wait until after the pandemic to go into the doctor's office. Cause I don't, I don't know what's going on. I think maybe it's just tennis elbow from like working out or whatever. No, it turns out he had a heart thing. Um, and June of, what was that? June of 2021, he emails me and is like, Rand, I, I got the email about Moz being sold. And, you know, he was a, a shareholder, right? He worked, worked there too. And he was just, he was infuriated. He was like, I can't believe that you would sign off on this. And that, especially the, you know, how much compensation was going to employees. Like he wasn't pissed for himself. He was pissed for all these other people. And how little they were making. And I, it was an angry email. Like he was pissed at me, you know, and I emailed him back and was like, Russ, I, I'm not on the board of directors anymore. I, I didn't know about the deal any earlier than you did. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you. I wish, I wish I could do more, but 
here's what we are doing. Geraldine and I are going to write personal checks to everybody that we think was screwed. So you send me a list of anybody you think we missed because I'm going through Carta, which, which has everybody's stock options and equity in it. And like we're writing personal checks underneath the IRS tax limit, right? Like you, you have a gift tax limit that you can only give whatever it is, 14,000 per person per year. So, you know, we wrote a, about $700,000 worth of checks all under that gift tax limit, right? But to, to people at Moz and, and Russ wrote back and he's like, okay, I'm really sorry. I should have known, I should have known that you guys would do the right thing. And, you know, here's a couple of people that if you miss them, make sure you get them. Um, anyway, a week later, he passed away. A week later, his five-year-old daughter found him in bed. He had taken a nap and he, he didn't wake up. And, I, you know, we were just, um, we were actually just out in, uh, in North Carolina where he's from because his, um, his wife got remarried to, to a guy she met through grief counseling and, you know, they sort of Brady bunched it. It was the sweetest wedding in the world. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway. No, this I, is, this is the shit that makes yeah. people understand what it's like to be an entrepreneur. The stories behind the headlines. Well, I, I do not share this story. I'm worried that people are going to be like, Rand is telling the story to make himself look good. And I, I don't want that to be the characterization. Here's what I want. What I want is I want to tell this story to make other founders who don't reward their teams feel guilty and do the right effing thing. There you go. Like step up to the plate, people, because you did not build your company alone. You are not the only reason that it is successful. Yes, you hired that team. Sure, you started the thing, but you didn't do it alone. And I hate this you know, 99% of the money goes to one person. I mean, you know, in our case, right? Like Geraldine and I owned a little under 20% of the company when it was sold. And we sure. made significantly less than 20% of the sale price because of right. preferences, liquidity, blah, 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 right? So the investors right. get the majority. Right. By the way, if, if I was allowed, if I hadn't signed something that said I couldn't, I would tell you the amount that it sold for. I would I tell know. you how much I made. Right. All of those things are. Yeah, they don't let are, you do that. Yeah, I'm familiar with those as well. So, anyway, man. again, I want to say thank you for sharing that stuff. And I think there are some people right now who are listening to that. And whether they are founders in sort of the venture space or more likely probably small business folks, that it's just a reminder that this is a team effort and that in whether it's single digits, dozens, or hundreds of people that have come together to build the thing that you're out there, you know, representing that the, you know, the, the, the phrase, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together mantra that, that really, really rings true. Um, but yeah, but just don't, if you're going to go far and you're going to go together, don't be, don't, don't be yeah, don't be stingy, right? Don't, Share that wealth. I promise you. I promise you, it will come back to you in far better ways. Um, not not just not just the act of doing it, but the attitude that other people are deserving of the rewards for their own labor. Um, yeah, I, I wish I could share that. I, I wish it was you know more codified in the structural aspect of how businesses are built. But yeah, 
late stage capitalism is a little bit, <laughs> a little bit wonky right now. So, well, yeah. And not to mention, you know, that, that to me, that goes hand in hand with the story that people don't understand really what venture capital is. I, you know, I've shared this story before creative, creative lab doing, yeah. If I haven't shared it, I was, I'm, I'm happy to do so now. Uh, also, but so doing, Chase, you know, I, with Spark Toro and Snack Bar Studio, I learned my lesson. Like I did not raise venture, but I did raise money. Like I don't, now I have right a network of people who believe in me, think, you know, think I'm trustworthy. And so a lot of folks, you know, folks like yourself, I, I think you're not an investor in Spark Toro or Snack Bar, but, um, you know, a lot of folks in positions like yours, um, you know, in my world, I reached out to them and said, Hey, I'm, I'm building this business. It's going to be a profitable long-term business. You're going to get dividends. Um, from the payment. So everybody who invested in, in Spark Toro in 2018 just got their money back last year. Like we sent them, you know, if you put in 50 grand, you got your 50 grand back. My hope is in a couple more years, we're going to send you another 25 grand. And a few yep. years after that, we'll send you 25 more. And, you know, all my goal is to build these kinds of profitable, long lasting, structurally sound, really sane and um, chill businesses. And then hopefully, longer term, popularize the idea that you can raise money in alternative ways, right? I want investors to say, yeah, you know what? I don't want to take bets on one in 100 companies like Venture. I don't have 100 bets to place. I, I can only invest in maybe two or three or five companies. So they better work like SparkToro does and have a high chance of getting me my money back and then giving me dividends over time. It's a beautiful model. And that's one of the reasons I, sh I mentioned having TA on earlier. He's been yeah. on a couple of times working on a little entrepreneur series of sort of things that people don't really tell you about how to get money, what kind of money. And this idea, I think, you know, my hope that the takeaway from listening to you and your story, and especially that last bit there is to help people understand what it means when you raise money from who, what kind of company, what kind of um, financing agent, what kind of vehicle rather is probably a better word because agents got a too many meanings, but what kind of vehicle you use and yeah. that the future for most people listening to this show right now is very much in line with what you are talking about. There are all sorts of other ways to raise money that do not mean that you, you know, someone dumps 25 million into your bank account one day and that there's a whole host of strings that come with that. Mark Cuban's been on the show. He's a friend. He's, he was very clear. He's like, let's, let's talk about this the right way. The first way, the first day that you get your venture capital in your bank account, you need to remember that that's your first major loss. <laughs> and I'm like, Whoa. And I don't want to having, I, I remember having this conversation, right. Of um, looking at the statistics of a self-funded versus, you know, a venture funded, operation and you know the stats on on self-funded operations it's not phenomenal but you know the uh 10-year survival rate for for example a, a consulting or a services-based business um are are pretty good in the united states right it's like 70 percent um not bad the 10-year survival rate for a venture-backed business are a little under eight percent so the day you raise venture, all your friends are reaching out and being like, congratulations, so proud of you. This is amazing to see, like wonderful job, keep going. But what you've actually done is reduced your chances of surviving as a business by 10x, right? <laughs> so um, it, yeah. it's just weird, right? Like 
what we should say is, oh, you raise venture. I'm so sorry. You're probably going to die as a business. <laughs> right. But that that's technically accurate, but nobody feels comfortable saying that. Even I don't. You know, people who reach yeah. out to me are like, hey, are you raising money? I'm like, congratulations. I'm thrilled for you. I hope it goes well. I know that it probably won't. <laughs> Just based on math. Just based on math, right? The stats are out there. Yeah. There's, um, and, and the last couple of years obviously have been even worse than sort of the, the decade prior. So, yeah. Well, let's, yeah. let's, the way that I would like to um, get your sort of final take on this chapter of our conversation. And, um, you know, I'm sure you, you will have an opportunity to, to be on lots of other podcasts and shows. And this will, you know, all of your wisdom will continue to be uh, shared. But for, for purposes of this show, is it safe to say that? You learned a lot. You're interested in different kinds of financing lately. Your most recent company is one that you've sort of leaned into a different kind of fund financing. There are great companies that make sense for venture, and it's really a message of make sure you know what you're getting into and that you know basically you're on a certain path if you're getting that kind of financing. Yeah. You have that you have done a different you've chosen to do a different kind of financing. The Spark Toro example that you just shared yeah. is interesting where you're paying paying people dividends. Talk to me now about the studio, how sure. you finance that and what you expect. You know, is that a still a, a different kind of financing again altogether? And what do we have to learn from you and that adventure now? Yeah, so that one that one is very early in the journey. It is using the same model as SparkToro. Um and I think we're Geraldine and I are probably going to be larger investors in that one because you know, thanks to the Moz sale, we we have more finances to be able to contribute. Um but yeah, that that one is uh essentially my hope is to prove this model by building a few businesses like this. And showing that it can be done. Uh, you and I were talking earlier about um, Scott Heimendinger and, and his new company, which I won't I won't yep. spoil all the details. But um, I think he he hasn't publicly announced a whole lot yet. But he he okay. raised money similarly, right? Yep. Using essentially the the SparkToro docs, which are open source. So for anybody else who's out there, if you search for SparkToro funding, you will find open source versions of our funding documents so that you can take those and you don't have to pay a lawyer to build them from scratch. Uh, and you can hopefully go raise money um, the way you would like to it, at any amount, right? You might be raising $50,000 or $500,000 or $5 million. Um, and the, you know, the docs can work for all of that. So my, you know, what's my, the, what's the location for that? Just, just oh, Google SparkToro. Yeah. If you Google SparkToro funding, uh, it's on our blog and then it's linked to a Google drive that has the documents in it. Um, okay. a few companies have used them, uh, some folks, I think in Nashville emailed re recently cause they're, they were using the docs to, um, fundraise cool. for their company. So it's, that's been exciting to see. I would love to see that take off. The other thing I'm trying to do is urge investors, especially a lot of angel investors who basically tell me the same thing over and over again, which is I don't have the money to make a venture style fund work and venture style investing work, right? Like I, I would have to beat the market so significantly in terms of the odds that it doesn't make sense. A venture portfolio can invest in 200 companies 
And if 192 of them go bust, that's fine. It's actually part of the model. It's part of the model. But if you as an investor are like, okay, I want to put 50 grand into 10 companies. Oh, shoot. My my stats didn't pay off. Guilty. (laughs) Right? Guilty. Yeah. You know, my... um, my belief on this front is that there's a lot of opportunity for investors if more businesses that sort of had a long-term profitable dividend paying, you know, get you your money back type of model existed, that there would be a lot more opportunity. And it's weird to me that venture has sort of um, exclusively owned this market. I'm not saying venture is always bad. Obviously, if you're building something in biotech or pharma or clean energy, You need hundreds of millions of dollars of investment with like a questionable payout. You need that structure. But I'm sorry, in software as a service businesses, 99% of the time you do not, right? In in, uh, creative style businesses, 99% of the time you need $150,000 to get off the ground, pay yourself and maybe your co-founder to like get the initial product out. And then you're off to the races and you can pay that 150 grand back in a couple of years. um, that model needs to exist. I think, uh, I think it's crazy that it doesn't. I'll, I'll also say, you know, I think that, I think that the venture style, the venture lifestyle, like you lived this too, Chase. I know you did. And I don't, I don't know if you would say this. I would say that the, the lifestyle and the, the grind, the hustle culture, the like put in you know, hundreds of raw hours every month. I believe that inversely and counterintuitively worked against the success of the business. I think that it made us tired. I think it made us burnt out. I think it made us make poor decisions. And what the hell is the goal of an entrepreneur? What's, what's your job or my job? It's to make the best decisions we possibly can, which I don't think you do if you're working 60 or 70 or 80 hour weeks. Just it just, that's not what's going to help you make good decisions. Um, and there's tons of stats and psychology and data around that. So I think one of the reasons SparkToro is successful, one of the reasons the product works, the business works is because we have a very relaxed environment where we make good decisions instead of putting lots of raw hours of labor. And I think that's going to be true for Snack Bar as well. I, I don't know. You t- I'm curious to hear like what you think about that because- mm. I You've think obviously is, been there too. I'll tell you, I am fascinated by our conversation today on a number of different vectors, not the least of which uh, specifically around these, you know, these alternatives to funding. I believe that, and part of the mission of the show, my personal mission, what I'm writing, talking, thinking about uh, why I've had, you know, you and, and a couple of other friends on the show is I do think that there is going to be more capital available to more people. It's going to, there are going to be more, um, all sorts of different, uh, ways to finance your business. The fact that individual creators now are, you know, seeking investment that you, you know, people, you know, wanted to buy Mr. Beast thing for whatever, a couple you know, billion dollars or something. There's it's the environment is fertile and interesting and evolving rapidly. I, I believe that there are businesses and I'll just tell you, one of the things that I'm working on right now is. Um, I, prior to being the CEO of Creative Live as a photographer, my photography studio really was an incubator. 
Hmm. It was incubating ideas. I incubated the best camera app, which was the app of the year on the Apple iTunes platform in 2009 that I had all sorts of business adventures with that had millions of users, you know, beat Instagram essentially raised a hundred million in venture capital and kicked their ass, which is why we're all using Instagram now and not the best camera. So I learned a bunch from that, including how to raise venture capital because I turned it down when they came knocking. I was like, Oh, I don't need that. I learned a lot about how to manage, you know, uh, scaling businesses, engineering, things like that. But what I learned a lot about in that process was the different kinds of funding, different journeys for entrepreneurs. And that's part of the thing that that's why I want you on the show. For example, the, the, there are stories, there are funding vectors that are, I think becoming clear and, um, evolving. I'm now excited to be in a role where I want to be doing a lot more like what my studio did before mm. have my hands in in numerous things because my network of uh is broader now to be able to invest advise participate start things incubate them do the things that i can do well and then send them on their way and so i personally am fascinated by i'm, I'm literally as soon as we get off here i'm gonna go look for those docs download them because i have a couple companies that i'm interested in and, and or incubating right now that would benefit widely from this. So, um, you know, again, my, my personal interest might not match that of the listener right now, but if I'm a listener, then what, what I'm hoping they take away is that, Hey, look, there's a lot more to this raising money thing, including SBA loans, including, uh, yeah. you know, um, What's his name in uh, Glowforge? Floor, Glow yeah, Dan Shapiro. They did the glow, the crowdfunding thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. he did crowdfunding and raised like twenty million bucks or something like that. I mean, it's some it was like the most insane you know raise ever. So we don't want to you know think that all of our no, but our, I mean, like people are. I see people who are making uh, their own versions of like Dungeons and Dragons games and raising four million dollars. A, a yeah. guy I know um, did that and. You know, people are doing that with um, video projects and uh, books and, you know, yeah, children's and stories. To me, this is exciting. This is worth celebrating. It. But it, what comes with it is a responsibility for us to educate ourselves on what we're actually getting into. And this is one of the reasons I find your story so helpful. And um, and again, I, I want to say thanks for, oh, yeah. for sharing. So the folks out there, there's plenty to learn, plenty to know. I will reference our my, my uh, previous episodes with T A as in T dot A dot uh, McCann M C C A N N because we talk a lot about it. We go into more detail here. But to turn the story back to you, and if you have used the same docs for your next venture, the studio, I'm wondering if you can paint a picture of what kind of business you, you think that's going to be. Yeah. Such that. Um, sure people can be in inspired. You went from a venture backed business to a small self-funded lifestyle business that produces great revenue and dividends for its investors. And now what's this next? Yeah. Chapter? I mean, Spar so SparkToro is kind of, let's see, I, I hesitate to call it a lifestyle business because I think venture investors usually use that term pejoratively to say oh, okay. something that is um, small and, Kind of like, oh, adorable, pat you on the head. Like, oh, you have a lifestyle business. How cute. Run along now, little kid. If you want to play with the big kids, 
you know, let us know and we can come take our big checks. Yeah, come take our big checks. So SparkToro is certainly designed to produce dividends and returns that are similar to what an angel investor might hope for or expect from a venture scale business, but partitioned out uh, in smaller chunks over a long period of time. And then if and when the business ever sells, they get another big check at the end. Got it. So SparkToro is an alternative method for what I believe are smaller investors to have a higher chance to make a good return as opposed to a very tiny chance to make a you know, 50x, 100x, 1000x return. Got it. Um, Thank you for clarifying. Snack Bar Studio is, because of the nature of the video game universe, you know, Chase, it's, um, it's a hits-driven business. It absolutely mm-hmm. is. So every year there are uh, 20 to 30, well, probably more than that, maybe more like 50 to 100 breakout hits in the indie game universe that earn, you know, $3 million or more in revenue. and we are certainly aiming to produce some of those hits, right? We Got it. Um, can we anticipate or reasonably expect to get a fifty million dollar game on our first game, you know, or um, whatever, like like a Minecraft or a Stardew Valley, Hades? Probably not, right? Th- that is a, a a high bar that we almost certainly will not cross with game number one with a tiny studio. But do I hope to build something like? Um, what Supergiant, who, who made Hades, has built, right? They started as a very small studio. I think their first game was a game called Bastion, you know, less than 10 employees full time. Now they have a studio that's like 50 or 60 people, and they're consistently making these kinds of games that really resonate with people and, you know, bring um, a lot of joy and beauty into the world. Yeah, that is absolutely the goal. Uh, my hope is that Snack Bar is a, again, a 15, 20, 25 year long business that produces um, revenue and then pays dividends based on the success of the games over time. Um, And we, you know, I think, I think we have as good a chance as anyone. My, my one, my one big takeaway from the creative world, especially of video games, and I'm sure you've seen this in other pursuits as well, is that very few, unfortunately, very few indie creators um, think about their product from a marketing perspective first. They do not consider who will amplify, not buy, who will amplify my product to the audience that might buy it and why will they do that? And if you start from that lens, I believe you have given yourself a much greater chance of producing a product that is going to reach the audience that you need to reach. And in spaces like, you know, the video game world or or the creative world, um, I think this is true for video channels and email newsletters and um, photography. I think it's true for for artists, right, who create visual art. It's not just about is the product good. It's about is the product worthy of or or creating an incentive for people who have audiences to share it with those audiences. Tell me very specifically how you're doing this with Snack Bar. Sure. So uh, our belief is that our strength comes from an existing network and a network of uh, creators and amplifiers that intersect with 
uh, three worlds that we already intersect with. And those are um, sort of the marketing universe, the food universe where, where Geraldine and myself and a bunch of people in our network, people like Scott, right, have lots of connections and the um, feminism universe and sort of online um, content creators around that, right? Geraldine has a, a very large audience that follows her on a, a variety of channels. A lot of them have moved to threads recently, which has wow. been really interesting to see. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Geraldine sends out a post on threads and gets a thousand equivalent of retweets, whatever they call reposts or whatever on threads um, on, wow. on almost everything she shares. So it's really you know, crazy to see that growth. And so we're leaning into those already existing strengths and making a product, a, a game that leans into food and feminism world and is centered in this very unusual setting of mid-century Italy, right? 1960s Italy. So it has a, uh, a reason that you would talk about it. And then a few other things, right? Like um, some of the voice actors that we're talking to about doing voices for the sure. game are people that you might follow a Stanley Tucci type. I'm, I'm not going to guarantee that we're going to get him, but you know, those <laughs> yeah. kinds of people. So it's, it's all from a lens of not just the product is quality, but also, gosh, you know, I can see why NPR would say, Oh, you know, here's this game set in mid-century Italy voiced by this very popular person in the, you know, in the acting and, and creative universe. Um, or here's this woman who's very famous for, you know, writing books and selling them in the, in the sort of food and feminism world. And she's the lead writer of a video game. You know, that's an, that's a reason to talk about and amplify, uh, a game. Obviously the product has to deliver too. Like if it's not fun, if it's not beautiful, it's not going to work. Those are, but but these are, those are table stakes. Those are table stakes. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so you, um, I think it's it's that strategic angle of do I have an audience that I already reach? Can that audience be valuable to me? And where do I find other audiences that intersect with the people who are likely good matches for the thing that I'm selling? I, you know, in video game world, what's nice is the humanity is no longer producing human beings that don't play video games. <laughs> right? <laughs> like there's right. No, no one who's been born in the last like 20 years doesn't play video games. And so you, you get a, um, you have a much broader group of people that you can appeal to. And so, um, that's very different from sort of spark Toro where the challenge for us was how do we reach the people who reach professional PRs, public relations specialists, you know, professional digital marketers, um, professional researchers in in uh, psychographics and demographics all those kinds of folks who need and use our product and that's a really different audience to reach obviously thankfully because of my seo background i i was very close to adjacent audiences and was able to use that methodology but this is something i'd recommend to every creator right think strategically who's in your network who do you uh who can you reach what are the sources of influence of the people that you need to reach in order to sell your product. And why are those people going to amplify you? Is it because they know you and like you and trust you? Is it because the product appeals to them in a way that nothing else ever has? Is it because you have connections to them or you have a unique campaign or you have a um, some sort of incentive for them to share? If you don't have great answers to those questions, 
I'd urge you to find them before you make your product. Mm. That is just straight fire right there. (laughs) I'm marking that. That's the cold open. We just found it, folks. That's amazing. So this is, you know, to me, these, these ideas when I think if I wanted, if I could share something with the listener, the watcher right now, and this has been a goal of the show. And again, I'm grateful to you for being so transparent, direct. These are the conversations that I, that I have when there aren't cameras rolling normally, when they're, we're not <laughs> recording it. When you and I would go out and have lunch and talk about our Nest product, these are the sorts of things like what is the audience that I'm serving? Here's how I'm thinking about it. These are very, very strategic decisions that, that I'm hoping that, you know, if you were listening right now that you, you probably need to rewind, you know, hit that back 30 second button like six times yeah, and, and go play that again, because well, this is, this is so much a part of the difference between, you know, success and failure of creative and entrepreneurial ventures. Go ahead. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what scares me a lot. I think there are so many smart, talented creatives, especially creatives who I, I'm fearful. And I hear these pitches all the time, right? From folks in my, in my universe or, or just outside of it. who are like, gosh, I think I have a really exciting product. Here's what it is. But there's, there has never been that consideration of who is going to help amplify this and why. And they, I'll give you a video game example. Like I talked to a lot of folks in video game universe because I wanted to learn about it before I entered the field. That's another big tip. Let me tell you, friends, please, by all means, just interview like a few dozen, have conversations with a few dozen people who've built companies in the space that you want to build a company. And before you start yours, I promise you, you will learn so much. You'll avoid so many pitfalls. Okay. But as I was doing that, here's what I heard a lot of, which is, I always wanted to make a video game, right? And, you know, I've made games for other people before. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I made um, a wizard with a gun? And look, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like you, you have your fun idea and you're like, well, what if we made the guns way bigger? I want to shoot two lasers. <laughs> you know, some pointed out to me, they were like, it's sort of like how George Lucas said, um, I want Star Trek, but with laser swords. Like, okay, <laughs> right? And so there's a lot of people who point to a few examples of whatever, a game that did something and they have their one iteration or uh, their, their tweak that they think is exciting for them. And it is a, I think this is a true challenge of a creative company builder versus a, an artist. Like artists make things for themselves, not, not necessarily to be beautiful, but to, to tell a story, to send a message because they can't, they can't resist getting it out of their heart and their head and onto the screen, the page. And that's what makes incredible art, but that's not what sells. And I worry that so many people who are so capable think about their artistic idea without a lens of why is this going to be successful? Why is this going to sell? And 
I'm not asking them to compromise. I don't, I don't want you to sacrifice your vision and the beautiful thing that you care about building, but I do want you to be successful. And to be successful, I think you need that, a great answer to that question of who can reach my customers? Why are they going to care about the thing that I'm doing? What's going to make them amplify it to those people? This is the difference between creating art and creating the the art of business. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I love artists. I can't tell you how much right. I love artists. I want them to succeed. I want them all to win. I love the beauty and creativity there um, and the thoughtfulness. And I just want them to be more successful, right? Like, so, yeah. Mm. Absolutely beautiful. Heartfelt, earnest, as always. Thank you so much. Can you point us to a couple different things that we've sort of... Um, swung from vine to vine if we will in today's show uh point sure. people to the book point people yeah to i think spark toro is s-p-a-r-k-t-o-r-o uh the you're, you're, the, the just point to a couple different locations in your world sure. so we can keep track yeah yeah so i think for folks who might be interested in sort of the entrepreneurial story and journey marketing successes and product successes and failures um lost and founder is is a great place to start for that uh, that's then the book, it, by the way, that's the book folks. Yeah, that's the book. Um, if you're interested in sort of some of the more, uh, marketing focused talk, topics that we were just discussing, uh, the spark Toro blog goes into those. There's one post in particular called who will amplify this and why. And that would be the post I would point a lot of folks to as a starting point for thinking strategically about baking marketing into your product idea. Um, I would also say I, I wrote a post a while ago on um, why product market fit is not a binary, but is a spectrum and talking about how that spectrum functions and, and why the venture capital mindset and lean startup mindset of product market fit, I think, is broken. So if you search for product market fit is broken or product market fit Spark Toro, you'll find that post as well. Uh, those those are all good starting points. If if folks are interested in following me on social. I'm most active on threads and LinkedIn um, and would be thrilled to see folks there. Rand Fishkin, thank you so much for being a guest yet again on the show. Always a treat to see your face, friend. And thank you for keeping me uh, in your universe. Seductive as all of the things that you're doing are. It's always <laughs> fun to, to uh, spend time with you and hear you articulate them more clearly than I could ever get out of social media. Um, <laughs> well, my pleasure, Chase. Thank you for having me. Of course, and for everybody out there in the world, please pay attention. Rain is a dear, dear human being and very, very good at what he does, especially explaining the stuff that we need to know about. So from, um, from Rand and myself, uh, we hope you have an amazing day and stay tuned for the next episode coming soon. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, Chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community all of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. 
And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing the show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. Together.